0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Filmmakers are reporting they were making more money from canopy royalties than they were making on
1: iTunes or Netflix deals. So we realized that we had a really special market and a target audience, and we were generating real revenues for an industry that really was in a bit of crisis, that needed, needed revenues and needed new income channels.
0: This past seven or eight years has seen an explosion of entertainment streaming services Offering film, TV shows, documentaries and one-off entertainment events on demand when we want to watch them. So how did one small Aussie startup not only match, but beat some of the massive global streaming giants at their own game and build a service that is not only free for film consumers, but can be accessed simply by using your university or local library card? Well, over the past 13 years, Sydney-raised and Perth-based Olivia Humphrey built her company called Canopy. That's Canopy with a K, a video streaming service that offers independent and classic films, foreign films, docos and educational videos that it claims inspires and entertains. Partnering with public libraries and universities, Canopy is ad-free for end consumers and all it takes is the swipe of your library card. So when Olivia worked in the DVD distribution department at Village Roadshow back in the early 2000s, she never dreamed of the extraordinary startup journey she was about to embark on. Since 2008, Olivia Humphrey built up Canopy from scratch into a multinational business with an impressive catalog of some 30,000 films on offer. Here's part 1 of my chat with Olivia Humphrey. Olivia Humphrey, thank you so much for joining me on Build It They'll Come. Great to be here. Well, it's fantastic to have you on. Now, for those who don't yet know about the business you founded just 12 years ago called Canopy, spelt with a K, tell us what it is first and then how did your idea come about originally? Sure. Well, Canopy
1: is an independent film streaming platform that's got a curated collection of thoughtful entertainment films, so films that might, you might see at Sundance or Cannes, a lot of documentaries, films that make you think and perhaps see the world differently, a lot of grassroots stories. And the way that you access it, similar to Netflix, you can sign up, but instead of putting your credit card in, you put your library card in, whether it's a public library card or a university student library card. And effectively, the library pays and the user
0: watches for free. Fantastic idea. How did you come up with it? So
1: Canopy's Origins was actually a DVD distribution company. While I was working at Village Roadshow, I noticed that university students would go to the cinema very regularly, but wouldn't buy any DVDs. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I went on to campus and went to University of Sydney's library and saw that there are a lot of basically 16 millimetre film just gathering dust there. And it gave me the idea that perhaps there was a market for building up these library collections with DVDs that I knew the students would actually watch. Whether you like it or not, I guess a lot of students prefer to learn through video rather than uh, books and journals in many ways. (laughs) Such an engaging medium. And that was, I guess, how Canopy was born.
0: Yeah, but if they were going to the cinema but already not, using DVDs, what made you think you could get students to actually look at DVDs of great films?
1: So I knew that students wanted to watch film. It was more working out a way to integrate film into the university curriculum. And I thought it was an interesting idea to explore if I could build the DVD collections within the university libraries so that professors and academics and students actually had access to this incredible collection of film. A lot of the film that the professors were requesting, just anecdotally talking to me, were quite difficult and obscure to obtain. And so Canopy mm. really started out as a, as a canopy over the 32-step process that university librarians were going through to acquire DVDs. And sometimes these included like importation challenges, credit card challenges, things like that. Yeah.
0: Right. So how could you do it better than the librarians were doing it?
1: So UWA, they claimed that they were spending 3% of their budget on DVDs, but over 50% of their time sourcing them, going through all sorts of hoops and hurdles to acquire what are quite obscure films in many cases. And at Canopy, I basically, it was just me in the beginning, I took on this labour at Canopy and and worked out ways to make the process more efficient, sourcing all these Mm -hmm. DVDs from all over the world and also through scale. Although there are only 38 universities in Australia by... About two years in, I was working with pretty much all of them. So when they requested, when the librarians requested DVDs, I'd invariably um, had the request from a university in the past or I could create a demand amongst other universities. So, for example, if a UNSW psychology academic requested a particular social psychology film, I could then market it to other social psychology professors around Australia and create a bit of a demand. So rather than ordering one DVD from this producer over in wherever it was,
0: Canada, I could order order 10 and get a bit of scale happening. So brilliant, really. You marketed to all of them as a kind of a group, whereas I guess individually those librarians had been acting on their own just for their own university's library.
1: Yeah, and I think the librarians were curating their collection based on what professors were requesting, what they thought professors would want, but also an entertainment sort of angle. And if you think of a mission of a university, a lot of the universities aren't just chartered to create or develop students in the one field that they're studying. And so any resources that can help them in their mission. welcomed and independent film I discovered really plays into these missions so films that I guess explore identity films that explore race religion all these things that a lot of university students politics etc are exploring and challenging and as they try to find their own way in the world their own place in the world.
0: Let's step back a little bit. You said you were working at Village Roadshow. What were you doing there, and did those skills help you in the new venture?
1: So, at Village Roadshow, I was in the DVD distribution department, remembering that in those days, a lot of films actually generated the revenue from the DVD channel as opposed to the theatrical or cinema channel because it was so expensive to market a film at the cinemas. By the time it came to DVD, the DVD team had such an advantage of a huge level of awareness. Interestingly, my role was actually distributing DVDs for any film that didn't have a cinema release. So that included a lot of documentaries, kids, sports, but also a lot of foreign film and independent film that didn't get a theatrical release. And so that was, I guess, the time that I really started Falling in love with independent film, I really got a big insight into the sorts of films that were available, and a, a bit into the into the how to market these films that had no awareness. But I think the thing that really, um, I guess, sparked a passion of independent films is seeing how the audience reacted when they watched a film. Like I said, sort of before seeing how their mind was changed, you know, they saw stories from people they'd never ever meet, and I just thought that was a really really powerful
0: force. And that's what I guess where my love of independent. Film was born. And so, why didn't you pursue your idea, say, at Village Roadshow? You were no doubt probably fairly well paid. You could have uh, backed yourself in and maybe talked the company into doing it. Why did you want to go out on your own? So I
1: had the sort of the beginnings of the idea, but never wanted to do it, <laughs> never wanted to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> never wanted to launch my own business. I mean, having a startup back then in what was it 2006, 2007, was it was almost a dirty word, and I had yeah. no aspirations whatsoever to do that. And so what happened was I met my now husband, and we went backpacking around the world for a year. I left Roadshow. And during that year, we made the decision to move back to uh, Perth, where he's from. And I knew moving to Perth to pursue my career in, uh, in media would be quite challenging. And that was when it was actually my husband who said, we've well, got this idea, why don't you give it a shot? And for some reason in Perth, it didn't feel as scary. I didn't feel I had as much to prove than I did when I was living in Sydney. So that's why I launched Canopy in Perth in 2008 with the original idea just to try and make as much or even more than I was at Roadshow. That was the original intention.
0: So very, very small aspirations back then. Yeah. So you just wanted to make the same salary that you'd made, you know, in the bigger company or maybe do a little bit better. That was how I was defining success. Yes. Yes. When did that change? It
1: just started morphing. I mean, to be fair, salary became the least important thing as the company grew. Mm. And I really started building my entrepreneurial skills.
0: How did you grow your skills? How did you improve your management ability? How did you learn to be an entrepreneur? By making terrible mistakes, to be honest, I really do have a regret, which is not having a
1: huge support network around me throughout my career until basically around 2013. Up until that point, I really taught myself or looked around. And I think in retrospect, I I wish I had a bit more time, a bit more maturity, perhaps to reach out and draw from the experience of others around me. But remembering there really was no startup community back then. I mean, VCs didn't really exist. And I started up Canopy using a business book from our local library, starting a business for dummies. So it was a very lonely existence. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have a network here either. So it really was by making a lot of mistakes
0: (laughs) and hopefully learning from most of them. Just extraordinary. Okay. So in those first few years after you started, it was still DVD distribution into the educational market, university libraries.
1: Correct. It was DVD distribution and YouTube had just launched. There were a few challenges with the business model that I had discovered. One was trying to, sorry, understanding that students were our end user. They were the ones effectively I was trying to target to watch these films. They were really hard to reach and market to, and they weren't the purchase decision maker. The purchase decision yeah. maker was a, a complex relationship between librarians and the academics, and the whole budgeting system in university libraries it was really quite complicated. And so when streaming launched, I realized for the first time I could have a direct relationship with the end user, the student, my audience, and try and drive demand that way. So I launched Canopy in 2008 and it was around 2010 when I launched the first streaming platform. And the yeah. intention was to, well, firstly, DVDs after around eight loans at the library, it was a, they invariably got scratched, broken, stolen, all these. Yeah. Um, it was a very difficult medium for a high viewing environment. So the DVDs weren't really used as much as I would have liked or aspired to, whereas streaming overcame this challenge very quickly. But also, I I got some really interesting insights and early insights into how professors and students were using the streaming platform. I made sure that all of the analytics and the viewing behavior for the films was 100% open. So, librarians or academics, whoever the university allowed, could log in and just see all the viewing behavior, of course, understanding um, it was anonymous viewing behavior because of privacy restrictions, but they could see which films were viewed, what time of day, from which faculties. There's this huge wealth of information coming from this digital analytics board, which I could also use as well. And still Canopy today has
0: the best analytics platform for video in the market. What was the business model and how did you, did you write a plan? Did you by then start to have some help with how to get a good business model going? The short answer to that is
1: no. It was a lot of trial and error. So when I first launched Canopy Streaming, I was working with librarians to understand what they wanted. And it became quickly evident that librarians are so busy. I feel so honored to have been able to work with these incredible, passionate people for so many years. But it's such a challenging role because their role is not only to buy resources for the libraries. It's um, to manage professors' needs, to manage the students' need. There are so many different resources from physical resources in the library through to the actual spaces, through to all the digital networks. It's just a huge role. And so wow. to ask librarians to understand the film industry intimately and then act as a PR agent to both professors and students on our behalf was really, really unreasonable. And I realized there was only one way to really get high views on the platform, which was to take matters into my own hands and really work out a way that I could reach the academics and the students directly, um, you know, obviously in with with the library's support and endorsement mm. to to really promote the platform. So the model started out that the libraries would buy a one year license to a film. Anyone at that university could watch it unlimited times. But what I realized was that, again, the libraries were making, the librarians were making the purchase decision, and I really needed to get through to the users. So I switched the model up, and this is when my brother entered, Tom, and he did a big project where he looked at what was happening with other mediums in other parts of the world and came back to me and said, there's a really interesting model with eBooks, which is basically a demand-driven model. So we implemented this demand driven model at canopy and how it worked was we basically said to the university you can take all of our films perhaps there were 10,000 at that time on the streaming platform and you can have them for free so anyone with a registered university student number and password can see all of these films unlimited times for free but the minute one film has been played four times we're going to charge you that one year license so effectively there's a few plays that trigger a license and that changed everything because now when I went to campus and could do my marketing efforts and get students and drive students to the platform to start watching, the students were effectively our sales force by virtue of their viewing behavior, as opposed to having the, the more B2B model, it turned into a B2C model, or what I like to call a to c model.
0: Right. Business to business to consumer. Yes. So what were your actual revenue streams? How did that work? It was pay-per-view by the library, but only after the first four viewings of any particular film had been viewed? It was a a license triggered. So four plays triggered a one-year license. And
1: I think it was around, I can't remember the exact price back then, I'm going to say $150, $200 for a one-year license per film remembering that a lot of these campus have 20,000, 25,000 students. Yeah. So, you know, not every film would generate those sorts of views. In fact, no film would generate those sorts of views. But it was the opportunity for anyone on the campus to watch at unlimited times. The way that it worked of that license, if we say it was $200 for a one-year license, 50% of that cost went straight back to the filmmaker. So I would send the filmmaker, you know, $100 check that month for that one particular sale. Of course, we had 39 universities in Australia using it, so there were more sales than just one sale for the filmmaker. But it's something that was really at the heart of the business was supporting the filmmakers and the creators of the content. They also got access to the analytics as well.
0: So Canopy would keep 50% of every sale. That's fantastic. Now, did you have to change the mindset of, say, the university librarians from not only when you started with the DVD distribution, but then when you moved to streaming? How did, you know, did they catch on very quickly? You said they were so busy and they had done things a certain way for such a long time two things happened. Firstly,
1: they were really excited because streaming was still very new back then, particularly in Australia. And to have students come into the library asking for this streaming platform presented a a level of relevance that librarians really embrace because for them getting in touch with the students' needs and wants is quite a difficult challenge. So that was one good thing. The second thing was that Canopy started getting so popular that it was started pressing on budgets, that budgets they budgeted very, very little for film. And because students were watching so much film, it required a re-engineering of how university budgets worked when it came to purchasing film. Yeah. It also created so much efficiency. So if you think in the past, there were a whole team of librarians who would have to buy the DVD or buy the streaming license. Now there was none because... It was all automated based on the viewing behavior. So, of course, there was a lot of pushback from some librarians who felt threatened about their jobs. And that was really, really challenging for me because that wasn't any of our intentions. I mean, never really bore any fruit, but it was just something that we had to deal with to train librarians on how to use the analytics and the insights to develop their curatorial strategies and almost enhance some skill sets in the digital realm. So that was was a challenge for us. But what I will say is, the, the biggest, I guess, challenge in terms of changing librarians' mindsets was the move to America. And it was around 2013. And around then, university libraries were spending more on canopy than on books for the first time in history, or ebooks at least, which was absolutely huge moment for us, as you can imagine. And we're getting a lot of demand out of the US and made the decision to move to the US. Now, in the US, there was two or three huge library multinationals who are already doing what we will do in terms
0: of streaming videos to university libraries. I can't imagine that you were the only one doing streaming of educational and Indian art house films to university libraries. so you know that was a tough call to decide to move into the heartland of uh, film competition.
1: And the reason I did it was less about, the universities, actually, even though we were getting a lot of university customers from America signing up. It was actually more about the film industry because I truly believed that Canopy was a content company first. And we really had to look after the filmmakers and respect the fact that they we were selling their wares effectively. And filmmakers and studios and distribution companies in the U.S. were writing to me saying, it's really strange. Why are we getting more revenue from Canopy in Australia than we are from your competitors in America? Canopy servicing 39 universities. In America, we have four and a half thousand. The system here is broken. And I constantly heard filmmakers complaining about the lack of transparency with the American streaming providers. They didn't know where their film was going. They didn't know who was watching. They'd get some pittance. And, Mm. you know, trust and transparency are huge for filmmakers. I mean, you don't go into film to become a millionaire, especially independent film. And so these films are really similar, like, like babies to these filmmakers. They really treasure yeah. them. And having these films go out into the world onto campuses and not know what's happening with them, where, when, how, uh, how they were being downloaded, etc., was really distressing to them. And yet with Canopy in Australia, they had full access to the analytics. They had control. They could see what royalties they were earning in real time. The check came on time or early, You know, really, really um, buttoned up in terms of that regard. So I thought, well, here's a real opportunity. A lot of the filmmakers weren't actually giving their films to these big multinational companies simply because they didn't trust their process. And they said, well, Mm. you come out to America and fix the system. So moved out to America really for that and decided to take on the American market. But you're absolutely right. It was an enormous challenge and one that I felt I was failing in the first couple of years, mainly because I, I really underestimated the competitive backlash. I underestimated how big America was, how expensive it was to to move there and to open a business there and to run it. It was a really, really overwhelming project. And largely because I moved there, really, I'd bootstrapped it. Had I gone with VC funding and had a support network, I'm sure things would have been very
0: different. Let's just step back a bit. From the beginning, where did the money come from to start? Did you have some cash savings? Did you go to a bank? Did you and your husband sort of scrounge and and get the money you needed? And how quickly did you start growing? So the money came from my savings. And remember, I just traveled the world for a year.
1: So I only had $5,000 left. But the beautiful thing about the DVD distribution business was the universities would order the DVDs. I would source them from the the trade uh, or the, the the filmmaker, and I'd get paid by the universities before I'd have to pay the trade back. And so cash flow was never an issue from the beginning. And from the get go, my costs were so low. I was working out of the front room of our house. It was just me. It was just a website, a few catalogs. It, it was a very low cost business. And, and looking now and understanding the complexities of a startup, I think starting it up, back before there was all this sophistication around how to do a startup might have been a bit of a secret weapon because I just stumbled along and grew organically.
0: Yeah. So how quickly was it cash positive? Did you know when you started that the universities would pay you before you then had to pay the filmmakers? Was that part of your thinking about budgets and business plans? It was. It was.
1: And it became, I mean, from the first month we launched there was this sigh of relief from resource librarians in university libraries that I was taking this enormously complex, burdensome, time-consuming task off them and from going from where they were to receiving once a week, a package of DVDs sourced from all over the world, neatly tied wow. up with one single Australian invoice with a bag of canopy jelly beans. It was, they often, <laughs> the librarians often said they looked forward to the package arriving. It was uh, very profitable, very quickly. I and mean, when I say very yeah. profitable, very, very low revenue, as you can imagine, it's only 39 universities. Some of the
0: DVDs were not expensive. Yeah, so you're saying you were the only one working there. Were you paying yourself or when you say it was was very profitable, but yes, you had a low revenue base at that time, so probably fairly low profits.
1: So I took enough out of the business to survive but really relied on my husband. So the opportunity cost was the only real cost because I Mm. learned early on I had a choice to take the money out and pay myself or reinvest it back into the business and keep growing it. And for the first up until, yeah, I think it was 2016, I simply just reinvested. I never actually took more than I was earning at Roadshow (laughs) until um, about 2016 because I kept making the decision to reinvest it back. So I was not the highest paid person at the business for most of the existence of Canopy until towards the end when I got really, really big.
0: Yeah, Olivia, when you first started this, you're giving me the impression that it was Perhaps a small vision back then, or was it a big vision? Did you see it as a possible global business?
1: It was a small vision back then to be my own boss, to have independence, to forge out a life and a living in a city I'd never lived in. And every day the vision grew, but I, I grew with it. So I never sat back and said, This is growing. I'm going to be in 88 countries by 2017. It was more right now that I've got. Western Australia, I'm going to try New South Wales. Now that I've got New South Wales, I'm going to try Queensland. It was really organic growth like that.
0: Yeah. How long was it just you running the business, doing everything, emailing, writing, looking for, you know, doing the deals about DVD rights, doing everything, posting those packages and (laughs) the jelly beans with it? Gosh,
1: I would say probably a year. And then I started getting a bookkeeper. I got an assistant, a fabulous assistant who I'm still friends with. And then with the streaming platform, Simon entered. Simon was a French backpacker wiping tables at a fish and chip shop here in Perth that I hired on a six-week project. And that was
0: back in 2010. How did you come to trust him and think that he'll be the one who can help me? So I had a consultant who had built the
1: DVD website and I asked him, I said, I don't know how to interview a technical engineer. Can I pay you to sit with me and do these interviews? I need someone on a six-week project to build a streaming platform, <laughs> which is just laughable now. But back then, just remember, like it was streaming was a very small business and I thought that's all I would need. And he sat with me with the interviews and I met Simon. He was on a um, holiday visa and he had six weeks available. So he started and we got on very, very well. The trust was there from the outset. He built the platform. He became a bit of a business partner for a while. We talked a lot about the business and he had an insight. So instead of developing a solution that met a brief that I would give him, he would sit there and talk about it and say, but what about in two years or three years? And so the platform was really built in such a robust way because of Simon's big thinking that allowed us to scale quite quickly and organically when that time came. And I will just say that Simon is still there in San Francisco, married,
0: and still working at Canopy as our principal architect in the tech team. Fantastic. So, okay, that was after about a year. You said you're starting to hire just a couple of people, including Simon, who turned out to be incredibly invaluable by the sounds of it. So were you getting any money at that stage from investors or were you still bootstrapping it?
1: So I bootstrapped it to the US, although I did take on a very small amount from an angel investor here in Perth, Matthew McFarlane, really because he approached me under his VC capacity. And at that time, I looked at the term sheet as I had a couple of VC term sheets, venture capital term sheets. And I realized by taking on venture capital, I'd be giving up a lot of control. And I wasn't quite ready to do that. The company by then with the streaming platform was really quite profitable and very cash positive. I didn't, my husband and I, we had a baby at that time. We didn't feel we needed huge costs to live on. We really believed in the business. So we weren't looking to take a lot out of the business. And we said, let's just use the profits to grow the business. So Matt came back as, as an angel investor and said, well, I really love what you're doing. Can I help? And I said, well, I don't know what I don't know, so I would love to have you as a bit of a a, a mentor. And so he put a small investment in as an angel investor and that was all that I had
0: moving out to the US. So you said the US was incredibly tough, that you'd underestimated uh, the competition, the costs of starting up there. Just give us a flavor of, I mean, for instance, on competitors, I mean, why wouldn't they try and destroy you? They did very much. (laughs) They did very much try to destroy me.
1: Very early on, one of the competitors tried to buy us at a very, very low valuation. And that process was really hard because moving out to the US, of course, I got flattered. Wow, this huge multinational wants to buy us. And so, of course, we shared some of our numbers. And when the valuation came back so low, I realized two things. One, this wasn't why we'd moved to the US and made all this effort. And two, I just shared a lot of detailed information about the business that I then regretted. But what I also came to realise was we're doing something really special that a big multinational wants that they obviously are not able to do at this particular point. And that gave me confidence. It also gave me a big drive to make it work.
0: How close is failure in those early years?
1: So close, so close that it was almost psychological torture. Sometimes, Grant and I would have my husband and I would have conversations around what would failure look like because I had to have those conversations really to address the high level of fear I often felt. So we'd have Mm. a talk around: well, if we move back to Perth with nothing and have to live in a caravan for a while, how would we feel about that? And it was a really beautiful process because we like, we still have each other. We still have our adorable son. There's some beautiful caravan parks right on the beach in Perth. And we will build ourselves back up. And that was really empowering.
0: So what drove you to stick with the US market, particularly in those early years after 2013? I mean, not only a foreign country, but a massive market with other players in it. There were times where I felt I didn't have a choice. The pressure was
1: so great. I had no choice, but I had to make it work. Remembering I had dragged my husband across the world, my oh. son, who was 10 months old, my brother, Tom, who'd been working on and off at Canopy on consulting projects while he'd been studying at Harvard, had moved once he'd graduated. He's from his MBA and was working full time in the business. I had this incredible team. A lot of the startup team are still there all these years later, which is just phenomenal in a city like San Francisco with such high turnover for startups. And so I felt it was a real family. And I really felt I just did not have a choice. And so that fear drove me on. But the other thing was there were these early signals of success, these huge moments of brilliance that supercharged me forward. A lot of them from the film world, the filmmakers themselves. Some films that we brought onto the Canopy platform just absolutely shone. We called them our GEMS. And filmmakers were reporting they were making more money from canopy royalties than they were making on iTunes or Netflix deals. So we realized that we had a really special market and a target audience. And we were generating real revenues for an industry that really was in a bit of crisis, that needed, needed revenues and needed new income channels. I also constantly, and still today, get huge feeling of satisfaction when I see the responses from the audience. These films were literally changing people's lives. Remembering on campus, it's such an interesting time for students. It's a time of redefining who they are and trying to work out what the world is around them and trying to explore it. And a lot of our films did exactly that. So we had films on suicide that are the really sad stories of people who would say, you know, this film has really, really changed how I feel about my own life, you know, really powerful moments. Films about religion, particularly our African-American collection in, in, in the U.S. was phenomenally successful, exploring race and conversations around that. So those sorts of moments really made me very, very supercharged to make it work as well. Yeah. So
0: how did you actually grow the business there?
1: I guess three stakeholders that indicated levels of success for me. The first were librarians and signing up new libraries. And there was a real moment where we would sign up a library, say, in Connecticut, and that librarian would talk to another university library in Connecticut. So we'd see these runs in
0: particular little regions that really helped. How difficult was that? I mean, you say, oh, we'd sign up a a librarian in Connecticut. I mean, that must have taken a lot of work, didn't it, to get these librarians on board? It took a tremendous
1: amount of work. And if I go back to your question about changing the mindset of librarians, this is where that really came into play. Because before Canopy, our competitors had models where they would approach a library and say, take our whole anthropology collection or take our whole African-American collection of film and pay one upfront price and own it forever. This concept of imperpetuity rights. So librarians were really valuing film based on time, how long they could get a license price, how cheap they could get it and volume, how many films are in a collection. And along comes Canopy and says, you can have the whole collection for free and you only pay when there's enough of a demand generated for that film to trigger an invoice. And it's only a one-year invoice for around $150. So it's a completely different type of mindset. What we were saying is all of the metrics you use to analyze success don't matter. None of those metrics matter.
0: What actually matters is usage. How many times are the films actually getting used? You said that you would charge the library 150, maybe 200 bucks for a license for a film. The filmmaker would get 50% straight away. Does that mean that the filmmaker was happy to get $100 for a year's worth of his film or her film being watched by, you know, maybe thousands of people, but he'd only get $100? They were. And if you remember, there's 4,500 libraries in America
1: alone, of which we had 3,000 of them within the first couple of years. So it was a huge volume. The filmmakers also had access to the analytics. And invariably, a film may get thousands of views if it's a mandatory viewed film or it's part of an online course. But most films wouldn't get that level of viewership. But because we were reaching such a huge market worldwide worldwide, and this is sort of like uh, filmmakers would call this icing on the cake revenue. Yes. It was actually dwarfing other revenue. They were
0: more than happy. They were thrilled. So interesting. Sorry, did we go through all the steps that you said catapulted you, you the librarians were the first one? So I think yeah, defining um, so
1: changing the way librarians defined success for their video resources was one first challenge. Tom did a fascinating study where he looked he did a big sort of library study which we presented at the library conferences, which is where we gained most of our business at these huge librarian trade conferences. but really the the secret source to our growth was librarians' i guess referral word of mouth referral. Mm-hmm. And then professors, we started signing exclusive contracts. So, for example, film schools really couldn't be a film school without having the Criterion Collection, which is the the world's probably top classic film collection all curated under this brand. And in a landmark moment for the company, I signed an exclusive five-year deal with Criterion Collection. So any film school, if they wanted the Criterion Collection, they had no choice. They had to come to Canopy. And we could start signing these exclusive deals just for the university market because over the years, we'd build up a reputation of being honest, fair, transparent, paying on time, and ultimately paying far higher royalties than our incumbents and that really turned the tides for us. Also having students and professors coming to libraries and saying, we, we want this film and it's only on Canopy was a, a really big acquisition tool for us
0: as well. When did you know that you were sort of really becoming super successful in the United States? Just give us a few markers of your success. How many university libraries can you talk about? I don't know, size of revenues or sales? So, I
1: always looked at success through minutes viewed. Every single day, I became literally addicted. I'd refresh and refresh and look at minutes views and analyze very data centric business. And my metric of success is if we can keep people watching, that's all we need to do. Firstly, that's how we get paid. Secondly, it indicates mm. demand. <laughs> And so minutes viewed. And when we started getting into the tens of millions of minutes, I know that moment was a big moment for us. The universities coming on board, the number of universities, I think when we started getting into the thousands, I got quite excited taking on the UK. I always think of the offices that I had throughout the evolution. And when we moved into these beautiful offices with views over Alcatraz and Golden Gate Bridge, that was a real marker for me of success. As well, hiring top talent and, and attracting talent from top media companies in our tech team, marketing people from the studios. That was another really huge moment. But I think the biggest moment was probably around 2016 when I, I guess, sourced my first venture capital, which was actually from private equity, but it was structured like a venture capital deal. And being able to attract someone who is so esteemed in business in the US, uh, Jamna Jaffe, who I guess he owns an NBA team, he's now owns McLaren Racing. And to have him invest in the business was probably for me still the singular most exciting moment, even bigger than when I eventually sold the company.
0: I think having him come on board. So you sold a piece of your business to a billionaire Uh, tell us how that came about
1: it came about because the business started doing really well canopy was earning really really big revenues and i started getting scared because we had grant and i as a family had all our eggs in one bucket and so the fear of failure started coming back which is super ironic because it shouldn't have because the business was doing well but i started making really safe decisions when it came to the business which was not helpful And I knew the business had more to grow. I knew I had to take risks to keep growing it. And I just felt a little paralyzed. So I decided to, for the first time, start pitching to sell some of the company and take some money off the table. Now, this is not done in America, and I think Australia as well, where startups approach venture capital and say... I want to sell some of the company and pocket the cash. (laughs) Highly unattractive proposition to most of the top venture capitalists that I was getting meetings with in America until I met Jam. And Jam came along and he said to me, look, what I hear is that you're wanting to make your family safe. You want to take some money off the table so that you know that your family is safe, which is the most important thing to you. And once you have that ticked off, then you can go and keep driving and building this amazing business. I said, that's it. And he said, makes sense. And literally handed Mm. me a check. And for him, it was a a small check because he buys companies worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He was looking at buying a library company at that stage, and I suspect he was going to plug us into it. But we had this amazing opportunity to have this extraordinary talent from him and his team, some of the most... Mm incredible minds and access to some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. So
0: how did that change the game for you, both having him back your vision, but also having that shareholder and that support network?
1: Well, finally, I had a mentor, someone who I Mm. could go to with my deepest fears. If I made a mistake, I could talk to him about it. And even better, I could talk about a challenge and avoid making a mistake. And we had the relationship where he could be very, very blunt and candid with me. That was just something that I treasure. So I wasn't constantly given positive reinforcement. (laughs) So that's where I really started growing as a CEO and really started working on my leadership skills with
0: him. Would he just say to you, Olivia, that was bad. Don't handle it like that next time. Or Olivia, why don't you try it this way next time? He would say after
1: a meeting, how do you think you went in that meeting? (laughs) When I try to describe what he's like, I think Obama is probably the closest. He really talks like Obama. So he's very, very disciplined in his speech. It almost felt a lot of what he had to say was rehearsed. He was incredibly inspiring. I just wanted to do the right thing and impress him a lot of the time which made me work really hard on myself and the company. So when he called me out, I really worked hard. He'd give me resources, he'd draw on his own experience, he'd introduce me to people to help me work through
0: that particular challenge. It was really, really worthwhile. In part two of my chat with Canopy founder Olivia Humphrey next week, she reveals how streaming giant Netflix did not crush her streaming service out of existence, why she eventually sold to private equity for reportedly a nine-figure sum, which she says definitely changed her life, how competitive forces in the United States tried to drum her out of business, and why self-esteem plays such a crucial role in transforming a humble startup into an impressive global company that's next week i hope you enjoyed build it they'll come let me know via twitter and linkedin better still let your family friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks and i'd love you to give it a star rating on apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.